Well, I invite you to turn over in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It's great to see you today. Merry Christmas to everyone. So we just read the story from the Gospel of Luke, where an angel tells Mary about the arrival of the promised king and of the role she would play in the Christmas story. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're told a similar story. But in the story from Matthew's Gospel, it's not told from the perspective of Mary, but rather from the perspective of Joseph. And that's a story I want to walk us through today on Christmas morning. Now, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you'll remember we've been working through three stories from the Gospel of Matthew, but we've been going in reverse order. So the first story we walked through was actually in the middle of Matthew chapter 2. It'd be what I would call the darkest or the saddest story or part of the Christmas story. It was the story of what Herod the king did to the little boys of Bethlehem as he tried to find and destroy Jesus, the newborn king. Then last week, we went back one story to the story of the wise men, a much more encouraging story. It was a story of what happened in the days right before that dark night in Bethlehem. The story of how a few, we don't know how many, but a few wise men from the east left everything behind to journey west in the hope of finding, welcoming, and honoring the newborn king. And this morning, I want to go back in time one more story to the story that led to both of those stories, the story of the birth of the king. So you can look at Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. But before we look at the text, I want, to, I want to know one thing about this story. And that is that this story is not actually the first story in the Gospel of Matthew. Because we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, which says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's where you read the birth story. But there's actually something else before that in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it's, it's not much of a story, per se. Instead, if you look at Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17, what would you say that is? How does our New Testament begin? Not much of a story, exactly, but it begins with a genealogy, right? Like a, a family tree of Jesus. And I'll just say two things about genealogies in the Bible. One, they are really, really important in the Bible. Uh, they, they show up as far back as the early chapters of Genesis, and they keep showing up at key points throughout the Old Testament story. So it's not surprising that when we open up our New Testaments, the very first thing that we read is a genealogy. This is just one of the many ways <clears throat> that Matthew is trying to connect this story of Jesus to the bigger story of Scripture. But also, if you look at this genealogy more closely, the second thing I would note is that this one leads specifically to Joseph, the husband of Mary. Joseph is really the focal point of this genealogy. And, it, and I think as, if you look at verse 16, you'd see that. Matthew 1, verse 16 says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And I think Joseph is the focal point because Joseph is a son of David. And that's going to be a key point throughout this, this story. But the genealogy shows us that Jesus' claim 
to the throne of David doesn't just run through Mary, but specifically through Joseph. That's going to be something Matthew's emphasizing. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that when we read the Christmas story in Matthew, it's actually told from the perspective of Joseph. Whereas if you read the story in the Gospel of Luke, the one we're more familiar with is told more from the perspective of Mary. Now let's get to our text. Okay, Let's walk through this Christmas story as told by Matthew. We think of it as the birth story, but it's interesting. It's actually hard to find even when Jesus is born in the story in Matthew. It's more of what happened before the birth, in the months right before, but we'll call it the birth story. So look at chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If you're not familiar with betrothal, it is something like engagement in our culture, but it is far more binding than engagement is in our culture. Once you were betrothed, you'd be called husband and wife, not fiancés. In fact, this is so much the case that, that is so important that to break off a betrothal, you would be required to get a divorce in front of witnesses. <clears throat> but betrothal wasn't, it also wasn't exactly marriage either. So it's, it's, not, it's, it's something different than engagement or marriage, actually. It's, it's not exactly engagement because it's far more serious, far more legally binding, but it also wasn't exactly marriage because during the betrothal period, which could last six months to a year, especially at this, at this time, the couple would not live together. The young girl would remain in her house until the time of the wedding, which would be then a big community celebration. And that would be the time when the girl would then go from her house that she grew up in to the house of her new husband. And so during that betrothal time, there'd of course be no sexual relationship between the couple might last for about a year in the first century, and one of the worst things that you could uh, have happen during that time would be if the young lady got pregnant. Now, why is that? I mean, just think about this. What, what would be the possible explanations for how that happened? <laughs> okay, there are basically two, right? Either she got pregnant through her betrothed, and in this sort of culture, where this is like huge community event and everybody's going to be celebrating this, this would bring shame on both of them and on their families. And it would certainly undermine the joy and celebration of this upcoming wedding. Okay? Or the only other explanation would be that the young girl had been unfaithful to her husband because they're viewed as husband and wife, and that's why that would be viewed as adultery, even though this is happening during the betrothal period. In the, Old, in the Old Testament, this could be punished by death, just like other acts of adultery. Now, now by the first century when this story is happening, that wouldn't typically happen, where this would lead to the death penalty, but this was still a huge deal. And that's how serious this was for Mary, who's probably an early teen, to end up being pregnant during her betrothal. So notice how Matthew tells the story in verse 18. He, he wants it to be very clear she's already been betrothed 
to Joseph, but he also wants to make it very clear they had not yet come together, which is to say they definitely had not had a sexual relationship yet. So how did the pregnancy come about then? And he wastes no time in answering. He says, this child was conceived from the Holy Spirit. In other words, Matthew is saying, before anybody would have any other questions, God did something supernatural. Mary conceived from the Holy Spirit. But what is the problem if you're Mary in the story? The problem is, who would actually believe that? Okay? And how are you even going like, to communicate that? But, but even if you said what happened, who would believe that? I mean, after all, there are only two options right, for how a girl could get pregnant during her betrothal. There is not some hidden third option out there that people could imagine. So this, of course, is the harsh reality that is settling in on Joseph during this time as it becomes very clear that Mary is pregnant. And so Matthew wants to let us in on Joseph's side of this, what he's thinking as he becomes aware that his betrothed is pregnant. So this is verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now notice how the text says Joseph is a just man or a, a righteous man. That means he is a guy who cares about God's law. He cares about doing the right thing. And because of that, there's really no other option for him but to divorce Mary. After all, he, he may not know everything that happened, but he knows this. That child in her womb is not his. He does, he does know that. But, and so if he just like goes on with this and takes her as his wife, he would more or less be saying the child was his. This was his doing. And so the only righteous option he has is to divorce her. Because again, breaking off betrothal is divorce at this time. But at the same time, Joseph is also shown to be a merciful man in the text too. Because he has no interest in publicly disgracing Mary or in shaming her in front of the community. He probably already knows the shame she's already feeling and carrying. And he does not want to add to that, even though just in theory you could say he might have had the right to do that. He has no interest in doing that to her. So what does he decide to do? Matthew says he decided to divorce her quietly. That probably mean he would get perhaps the very minimum, two other witnesses together, and he would go through the process of getting a certificate of divorce, but he would do it as quietly and as privately as possible. So he would do the right thing, but he would do it as mercifully as possible toward Mary. Okay? And that is exactly what he would have done had not something happened in verse 20. So verse 20 says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. So, so we read the story in Luke, just like the Lord sent an angel to Mary before she even conceived. So now the Lord sends an angel to Joseph, who's wrestling with what to do. Joseph, son of David, do not fear. You are to take that woman as your wife. God is telling Joseph to take her as his own. And by the way, this would communicate to others that he was involved in all of this. That's what everyone would understand from that. He would bear the shame with her if he did that. But not just that. The angel tells Joseph in verse 21 something very important. Notice the pronouns. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Joseph, you are to name Mary's son. And naming that little boy would communicate to everyone that without a doubt, Joseph was claiming that son as his own son. That's what it would mean for him to name him. And up until this time, it would only be Mary and perhaps her family who would be bearing the shame. But if he listens to this, the shame will forever be on Mary and Joseph together. That's the sort of decision he's being faced with. But also notice what the angel says to Joseph about the little baby. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now at this time, there were certainly many in Israel who were looking for a Messiah, who were looking for the king that had been promised throughout Israel's scriptures. But what were they hoping for? That What were they hoping that the Messiah would actually do for them? Like if you could put something else there. You, say, you shall call this Messiah such and such because he will do what? I mean, what would people be thinking? What was the expectation? You know, call him this because he will you know, crush our enemies, take down the Romans. I mean, all kinds of things like this. That would have been more reflective of what most people were hoping for. But the angel tells Joseph the mission of his son. Call his name Jesus, which is the same as the Hebrew name Joshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, I don't think Joseph or Mary knew much about how exactly he was going to do that. But Joseph wasn't called to understand all that that would mean. Instead, he was called to trust the message and obey. Claim Mary and the boy. Claim her as your wife and him as your son. And bear all the shame that goes with that. And now just to skip ahead to the end of the Joseph part of the story, look at verse 24. So Matthew 1, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And I think, don't you wish there was more of that in the Bible? Or in your own life, (laughs) for that matter. Joseph is told to believe and to do very hard things, things that would cost him. And he does exactly what he is called to do takes Mary as his wife, seemingly as his full wife, 
now. Notice Mary, or how Matthew says, he did not have a sexual relationship with her until after she gave birth to the son. And then the text ends with Joseph doing exactly what he was told. He called that boy's name Jesus. Okay, now for the last question in this story, about this story. Why did this all happen this way, specifically? Okay. Why this way? Let's look at the text, verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now about this, there could be a lot that we could say about this, about Isaiah, where this quote comes from, but I just want to focus on what's right here in front of us in the text. Why did all of this happen the way that it did? And the first answer from that text would be the Christmas story happened this specific way to fulfill God's promises. I don't know what everyone here may or may not know about the Christmas story, but you should know this, that the Christmas story happened the way that it did, where it did, how it did, to fulfill God's promises that were written down centuries earlier. God promised to send a Savior for us, but not only that, God promised to send that Savior in a very specific way, to a very specific place, and what God promised to do, God did when he sent Jesus, and how he sent Jesus. Okay. <clears throat> and then second, say the specific prophecy that these events fulfilled was that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son who would be called Emmanuel. <clears throat> now, where does that promise come from? That comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14. There's a lot that could be said about that prophecy that I'm not going to get into today. Just focusing on what Matthew does with it. Matthew sees in this story that he's telling about Jesus, he sees in this story the fulfillment of that specific promise from the book of Isaiah. That the Holy Spirit worked in a very specific, miraculous way to overcome all human limitations, to allow Mary to conceive, and that the child that she conceived in her womb was the very son of God. Fully human and fully God. And that special son would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's what I want to focus on here as we close. Yeah. Emmanuel, the phrase that means, or the word that means this phrase, God with us. Now, I don't think that people in Jesus' day called Jesus that, or at least not very often. Like, they, this was not what they typically called him. What did they typically call him? Jesus, okay? Maybe some people out there called him Emmanuel, but that was not his name that everyone was out there calling. They called him Jesus. But Matthew is saying, and the prophecy is saying, <clears throat> that Jesus of Nazareth was Emmanuel. Now, what does that mean? Matthew says that, that word that you might not be familiar with means God with us. And they would call him Emmanuel. 
What does that mean? For one thing, Jesus is the greatest sign that God was with us. And I think if you go back and you look sometime at the text in Isaiah about Emmanuel, it would be this sign. God was going to do things that would signify that he was with the people. And Jesus is by far the greatest sign God ever gave that he was with his people. God had given signs throughout Israel's history that he was with them. Like what might, you, what might come to your mind? I think, for example, of the pillar of fire that went with them through the wilderness. Or think of the cloud that filled the temple and the tent too, but that filled these things and they could see a sign. God is with us. God showed his people through clear signs that he was with them. But above all other signs that were ever given, Jesus is the sign that God is with us. But I, but I think as we think more of the Bible and learn more from the Bible, we come to find out that Jesus was not just a sign that God is with us like the other signs I might describe. And instead, we, we come to find out that Jesus himself is actually God with us. And here in the opening story of Matthew, that's what we're supposed to see in his birth. God is with us. And then I think in Matthew, this actually carries out all the way to the end of the book, where Jesus himself says at the end of the book, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. God is with us in Jesus. Jesus is God with us. But, but also notice in the quotation, who exactly calls Jesus Emmanuel? You see, it's Joseph who calls the baby Jesus. But who calls Jesus Emmanuel? You see it in the text? It's an in if you look at the quote, it says, they, they will call his name Emmanuel. So, so clearly in the text, Joseph gives the name Jesus to the little boy. But they will call him Emmanuel. Who are the they in the text? <clears throat> I think if you, if you look through the text, I think the, the only answer to that is that it is the people that Jesus came to rescue in verse 21. Because if you read through the text, he will save his people from their sins and they will call him Emmanuel. And I think those people that this boy came to rescue, when they think of the child, they will say, that is Emmanuel. That's what we're supposed to see and to say when we behold the child. God is with us in Jesus. Jesus is God with us. The Son of God has become one of us to save us from our sins. And when we think of Christmas, we, we should remember God really is with us. He really is for us. Jesus is Emmanuel. We call him that because we see him as that.
Do you see the child in the manger as that? Do you see Jesus, the Savior, as Emmanuel, God with us? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for sending your son to take on our flesh, to become one of us, to identify with us, to live for us, to carry our sorrows, to bear and take away our sins through what he would one day do on the cross. And thank you for raising him from the dead. We thank you, Father, for both sending the Son and raising the Son from the dead. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your promise that even today, you are still with us. I pray that these thoughts will give us great comfort, great hope, and great joy on this special Christmas day. We pray this in your name. Amen.